Whether you call them pommes de terre, patatas, kartoffeln, ardapplen, kartoshka, bitatan, batatas, shimanaki, chudu, alu, or just good old spuds, welcome to Planet Potato. Cedric, can you remind me, because I do sometimes forget, who are you and what are you doing here? Cedric, I'm Cedric Porter. Uh, I'm a potato journalist. I spend my time analysing and looking at the global potato market. As in which potatoes are up, which potatoes yeah, are down? Just, yeah, potato prices, all that sort of trade in this uh, futures. So that's your professional interest. What is your take on the potato? How do you feel about Ah, uh, The potato is just that wonder food. We all love it. Um, fantastic. Tastes fantastic for the environment, all those sort of things. And this is the sort of stuff that we're going to be exploring in Planet Potato. How important the potato is to all of us around the world. And to kick off later on, we've got a very special guest who is a world expert on the history of the potato and its importance to all of us. So we'll be speaking to her a bit later on. Where is she from? She's from Warwick University. And Rebecca, her name is? Professor uh, Rebecca Earl. A professor on our first podcast. We're very excited. And uh, yeah, well, she'll tell you more about herself, but um, she's written a fantastic book. What, what about me? Can I ask anything? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, sorry. And you are? I am Anna Lambert, otherwise known as Mrs. Potato Head. Um, Cedric and I are doing some social distancing at the moment, but not much because we're actually married. Uh, I'm not a potato expert, but I love eating them. I love talking about them. I have to be very careful because, dare I say it, rice, not so much pasta at the moment, do play a part in cooking here in our home in uh, Kent in the United Kingdom. But heaven forfend, I cook too much rice or pasta. It's got to be the potato. We love the potato. You're never alone with a potato. We're all being encouraged to social distance. Uh, So, Anna, you've been looking at potato and social distancing, haven't you? Yes, Cedric, I have been looking at the potato and social distancing. And I've got here a very snazzy little poster in front of me from Meridian, which I gather, thanks to you, is a town in Idaho. Uh, And Idaho is very big for potatoes. Uh, Yeah, Idaho is the biggest potato growing state in the US. So, as you'd expect when it comes to social distancing, they are advising people to stay... 14 potatoes apart and not just any potatoes they say in brackets on their poster the kind raised in idaho not those wimpy ones so a great way to plug the superiority of the idaho potato are they very good oh they're big they're very good and big russet burbanks most of them okay russet burbanks gosh sounds like a matinee style from the 1940s russet burbank okay so also they're comparing the 14 potatoes distance For other types of nature lovers, um, you could have seven blue jays distance. That's big to tail feather. So obviously blue jays figure big in Idaho. Or five trout. And here they say the size is based on the third time he told the story. I.e. presumably it's the story of the one that got away. So yes. Uh, Similarly, moving back into Europe. Unsurprisingly, Belgium, world-renowned for the quality of its fruit, is using um, that as a measure for social distancing. But in their poster, they've also got lots of other delicious Belgium goodies. So you could be 32 Orvo, which we gather is a bottle of wine, apart. Not beer. No, it's beer. Orvo oh, beer. 
Orville beer. Okay, yeah, so 22 so. bottles of Orville part, three crates of Jupiler beer, 43 pralines, yum, 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 uh, eight waffles apart. Gosh, that's a lot of waffles. Almost as much as you're going to get on this podcast. Uh, and ta-da, 10 cones of fries apart. So that's how much distance you need to keep in Belgium. You need to be 10 cones of fries apart from your neighbour. So no chip pinching. So not yeah, not no, in the current climate. It's very tempting to nick those fries. Yes, but keep your hands on your Belgian fries. Belgian fries, yes, not French social, fries, as they like to call them. Yeah, okay. And what else? What else have you found? Uh, well, I couldn't miss it, really. Uh, Matt Lucas, the comedian who... Um, Great British Bake Off, big programme over here, and I think probably in lots of other countries of the world in different format. He's going to be the new presenter, and he has uh, issued a song. He's come up with a song that extols the virtues of the baked potato in telling people how to keep safe in time of lockdown, how to keep washing their hands and uh, staying away, keeping social distance again. Um, it's a song he's produced for charity, so every time you listen to it, um, it's a good idea to make a donation, as we're going to be doing to support NHS National Health Service charities over here in the UK. So I think we should give it a listen. Go on, here then. it is. Let's Here's Matt's baked it. potato. You haven't heard, heard it. it. No, go on. Here go on, it then. is. Baked potato changed my life. Baked potato showed me the way. If you want to know what is wrong from right, you must listen to what potatoes say. Wash your hands and stay indoors. Thank you, baked potato. Only visit grocery stores. Thank you, baked potato. And if you want to have a better day, you must listen to what the baked potatoes say. Keep your distance, make some space. Thank you, baked potato. Remember not to touch your face. Thank you, baked potato. And if you want to have a better day, you must listen to what the baked potatoes say. Potato. So, Matt Lucas, thank you very much, and thank you, Baked Potato, for telling us what sh we should all be doing while we're social distancing. Now, um, my next or our first guest on Planet Potato, very very special guest, is uh, Professor Rebecca Earle, and she is the head of uh, history at Warwick University here in the UK, uh, and she's a food social historian. So, Rebecca, hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? How? Yeah, good, good. How's uh, how's social distancing and lockdown uh, for for you? Well, it's like we're trying to do the hand washing, keep our distance. My son works in the NHS, and so I'm always worried about him. But I'm okay. Good. Oh, we wish him well. Uh, now you are you specialise in food uh, history, but you seem to have a particular fascination with the potato. Why is that? Well, my background is as a historian of Spanish America, and I became very interested in the foods from Latin America that traveled around the world, like maize, sweet corn, chili peppers, tomatoes, and potatoes, because it's the Andes. And potatoes of all of these different foods, from of all of the different New World foods that became important globally, I think the potato has been the most successful in embedding itself around the world as a completely local ordinary food so people from india to um to upstate new york view potatoes as 
local, as ordinary, as from right here. And so I became really interested in how this very specific point of origin was transcended and potatoes then became this absolutely exemplary global food. And, and I mean, how, to me, I mean, it's an unusual crop uh, that it's not like wheat or corn that you don't actually see the, the crop there. The, the food itself is underground. It's, is that part of its uniqueness, its specialness? Well, it certainly has lots of, it's connected to lots of features that I help, think help explain the potatoes spread all around the world. I and mean, one is that it's, I mean, it's a super crop. It's incredibly productive. It's quite miserly in its use of water. If you wanted to get as many calories per hectare out of a bit of land as you could, you, you would be hard pushed to find a crop better than potatoes for doing that. I mean, maybe manioc might be a bit more calorific, but it's a great crop. And so it has lots of material advantages, which I think are connected to its physical qualities as a tuber. But it also had social or let's say political advantages that it offered to ordinary people around the world. So there's some very nice work by, this is by a, a scholar who's based at Yale University called James C. Scott, who argued that wheat and other grains facilitate the rise of states in the ancient world. So I'll try to explain what he, what he argued. He, he argued that, that grain is very visible and it needs to be harvested at a particular moment usually. So it's very easy for early states to know exactly when to turn up if they would like to tax that crop. They know when the harvest is going to be, they can see it. And it's very easy once the grain has been harvested and threshed and processed, it's pretty transportable. You know, you can carry off the sacks with your percentage of the tax. And so he argues that grains really went hand in hand with the rise of states. Tubers, in contrast, and potatoes, a very good example of that, are the absolute opposite. They're lurking underground. You don't see where they are. You don't need to harvest them at a very specific moment. You can leave them in the ground for quite a long time. And once you have dug them up, they're incredibly cumbersome. They're bulky to transport. They're not easy to carry off to the big center. I mean, that I think is why much of the international trade in fresh potatoes is actually quite local. You know, it's not weighted globally. And, and that's, and that, so because potatoes have been used sort of politically for, for good and for ill. Is it a more of a political crop? You talk about almost being a sort of rebel crop, if you like. Is it more political than, than other crops? Well, that's an interesting question. More political. It certainly has a whole political dimension. So on the one hand, there have been phases in the potatoes global history when states and statesmen were really opposed to potatoes when they saw them as a sort of rebel crop that enabled people to live kind of off grid. That was how people looked at Ireland in the 17th century. People in England, for example, looked at Ireland in the 17th century and they saw all of these peasant farmers who were growing potatoes and eating them and sustaining themselves without having to become laborers working for a landlord. They could remain independent because potatoes enabled them to do that. They were very prolific and they let people kind of escape. You were about to say. Yeah. And the, but then that's so that, but that over dependence on the potato in Ireland, it obviously, uh, you know, cause, cause, the, the 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 potato famine, uh, and and that again there was a political dimension to that as much as a uh, agronomic dimension. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think many people would argue that most famines have a man-made dimension, that few famines are caused just by a failure in the food supply. It has to do with the re political responses to failures in the food supply. And that was certainly the case with Ireland, that there was catastrophic failure in Ireland, but there was the potato blight affected all of Western Europe, but it didn't cause the same levels of fatalities elsewhere because the political and economic situation that people were living in, in Belgium or in other parts of, the, of Western Europe, weren't the same as in Ireland. So by the time of the famine, Irish farmers had been pushed onto these tiny patches of land that they were able to sustain themselves on because the potato is such a great crop, because it's so calorific, it's so nutritious, you could just about keep body and soul together with a tiny patch of potatoes. But when the crop failed, of course, that led to calamity. In other parts of the world, in other parts of Europe, where even small peasants weren't so uniquely dependent on the potato, the loss of the crop didn't lead to the same level of mortality. And that's not even coming on to how the British government responded to the famine. So yeah, so that's very much sort of a, a political angle. But are there other sort of countries where there perhaps been a more sort of positive historically a more positive relationship with the potato where the potato actually helped develop those countries any sort of examples and, and ideas there well i think the potato was really crucially tied up with the history of peru and bolivia and the andes so it's a it was it was an ancient crop that long predated the rise of the inca empire in well really in the 1400s. So it was a crop that was deeply connected to village life, to local religious practices, and to sustaining communities up and down these very diverse ecosystems of, of, the, of the Andes. So Andean farmers were very good at figuring out different crops that you could grow at different altitudes, and different kind of local ecologies. And potatoes were really crucial to allowing this huge cultural area to be settled by millions of people so that by the time the Europeans arrived, there was this very rich and vibrant culture that was partly sustained by potatoes. And in your uh, great uh, book, uh, Ob Objects, part of the Objects Lessons from Bloomsbury, the, uh, the, the series there, The Potato um, by Re Rebecca Earl, that, um, that sort of show, you've got a quote there from a, a postcard that you've got and, and that says, happiness is regular sex and potatoes. You know, do, why do people love potatoes so much? And why is it sort of linked to, to other aspects of life? Well, so yeah, do, why, why do potatoes make us happy? Well, I guess they make us happy in different ways at different times. And there, there's a whole, I'm quite interested in the connections between potatoes and happiness. And how that also connects to ideas about healthy eating, that potatoes go up and down in the... Um, in their status in terms of government health recommendations and whether we should be eating lots of potatoes, that we should be avoiding highly processed potatoes, whether potatoes are actually good for the state, whether they're bad for the state. And at the moments when potatoes have been seen as very positive and have been promoted vigorously by governments, for example, during the First and Second World Wars, when there was all across Europe, there was vigorous potato promotion. That was always connected to how potatoes made you happy. There's a wonderful book produced by the Ministry of Food in the 1940s in London, which is basically a collection of potato recipes of you know, how you could incorporate potatoes into absolutely every meal of the day from breakfast to, to pudding. 
But this collection of recipes, which is really just saying eat more potatoes, it will save wheat, is told around, you may have seen it, of a narrative about a cartoon potato called Potato Pete, who's okay. basically this extremely louche character who makes these suggestive comments to housewives about, you know, how he's there to be their little sweetie, but good taste it demands he keeps his jacket on at all times. But <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the recipe for deviled potatoes, in which he's kind of looking sideways and saying, I'm a devil of a fellow. <laughs> so there's this whole connection between potatoes and yeah, the kind of fantasy of sexual happiness tied up in this little World War II promotional recipe book. There you go, covering covering all the bases. I, I saw the one that was a, a was it a seventeenth or eighteenth century um, recipe for potato pie, with accompanied by was it wine custard? I think I thought that was uh, that that to me sounds uh, one to try in lockdown. Yeah, I've tried a couple of these. I was a big vogue for potato puddings in the sixteen hundreds and seventeen hundreds, and so they're a bit like. Um, well, I don't know. Have you, have, this is a very North American thing. Have you ever had a pumpkin pie? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you've encountered a pumpkin pie, which is sort of pureed pumpkins with eggs and sugar, you can start to imagine that if you replace the pumpkin with a mashed potato, yeah, you, yeah, and then yeah. eggs and sugar and cream and nutmeg, you could get a kind of spicy, puddingy tart. And they were very popular. I've seen dozens and dozens of recipes of them from cookbooks from this period, this, you know, 1600s, 1700s. And I've tried them and they're, they're pretty yummy. They're very rich. And they used to serve them with a custard in case they weren't quite rich enough. So that's, uh, yeah, that's something else for us to try. I, 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 before I spoke to you here, we, we asked you if you had a recipe. And I know in, in your book, you describe some real sort of special family recipes. Can you, uh, can you, can you share those, those with us? Oh, well, I was, um, with pleasure, I was, I, I've always been interested in cooking. It's a sort of, long before I became a historian of food, it was a source of solace and pleasure and creativity. And my mother moved house a couple of years ago. And in the process of cleaning things out, she was cleaning out a lot of recipes that she's a very excellent cook. And she had collected many recipes, including she had inherited various family recipes from both sides and her side of the family and from my father's side of the family. And I was looking through them as she was packing things up. And we found a number of potato recipes, which seemed to me very symbolic of the lives of my grandparents. There was a recipe from my my mother's father, who was from, from Austria, and they, they went to the United States in 1938, 1939. And there was a recipe for potato noodle, a kind of gnocchi, effectively, that was written out in his hand. And the, the recipe with his handwriting and the combination of German and English measurements and words seemed to me in a way to be in that very recipe, just telling the whole story about their emigration from Europe to the US and his straddling two cultures and trying to combine these different worlds in the single recipe. So I'm, I'm very interested in the ways recipes tell stories about family history. I mean, they don't have to be recipes for potatoes. In this case, they were. But that very often we can use recipes as a way of thinking about the histories of our own families. 
So yeah, I mean, that's a sort of fascinating element. And I suppose, so people and people are at home now a, a lot more. People are looking at those recipes. I mean, some people will be in that privileged position having some of those sort of family recipes. So I suppose, you know, it's probably a time where, where we are sort of reflecting more on our, our families and our family history perhaps as well and then that's a real to me it's a real sort of um strong element you've just brought out there and how how important those sort of recipes as you say for any food uh that, that, that they can be and you know how emotive food can be i think it's really powerful i think we recreating recipes that one associates with members of the family is a way of sort of connecting in your in your body with those people, even if they're distant, and that you're making with your own hands those recipes that maybe you remember relatives making, that maybe you've shared with relatives or friends in the past. So there's something very physical about recreating foods that you've eaten with other people as a way of connecting in your so, mind, if not, if not so, in yeah. person. Uh, but so really bringing that sort of history to history to life uh, alive and 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 then i suppose then being able to to preserve that and pass it on for for future generations as well because i mean this will be a a a, a, a sort of a, a very important epochal time i suppose for a lot of people and sort of be able to pass that on uh, will be will be important too well, I think people are certainly doing a lot of cooking as well. I, I heard that the BBC Food website has in, experienced a 600% increase in traffic since the lockdown. Well, <laughs> and I'm sure that there are, hopefully there's quite a lot of potatoes on there. I'm sure there are. <laughs> there are. Well, I, think that are getting, I think brownies seem to feature among the most commonly hit. Potatoes into a brownie to make something really moist. <laughs> Delicious. Everyone's been stockpiling their spuds, so they could, they've got plenty to, to work on. Thank you very much for that. And just on your books, um, as I say, the Object Lessons Potato Rebecca Earl by Bloomsbury, fantastic um, read. Um, uh, absolutely packed full of nutritious. Uh, information a bit like a potato itself small but perfectly formed so I can certainly recommend that one uh, and also you've got something else coming out very soon tell us about that that's true so there's the the, the object lessons book that you mentioned is is sort of a small poetic book it's it's small and short and is yeah, has poetry and art and talks about the potatoes multiple manifestations and importance across a whole range of, of parts of the world and what it can symbolize. And, and I've, I've also written a longer sort of global history of the potato called Feeding the People, the Politics of the Potato, which is coming out with Cambridge University Press in a month or so. And very sadly, they told me that because of the, the global situation, they're not actually able to be releasing the hard copies in the small burlap sacks that they had been intending oh, no. to release them <laughs> So the book had been intended to come with its own little potato sack, but currently it's available only as an e-book. Oh, but we'll, we'll all be looking out for that one. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look out for that in June. Um, so, Rebecca, many, many thanks for, for sharing uh, your sort of history of the potatoes and your, your insight into the potatoes. Uh, we wish you well and happy uh, potato peeling. And uh, we'll speak to you very soon. Well, thank you so much. Stay well, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.
Mm, I knew Rebecca would be brilliant because, of course, the book is just so good. It's really small, Object Lessons, Potato Rebecca Earl, published by Bloomsbury, but it's all in there. She manages to look at the potato in art, in literature, in philosophy, packed full of information, but in a really engaging, lively way. So I just hope she's willing to come back to Planet Potato to discuss other facets of the potato's role in life around the world. Fantastic. Um, oh, yeah, the only thing I would say, though, Seds, is you did sign off by saying to her happy potato peeling. And for many of us, we'd have to object there because the best part of the potato is in its peel. Indeed, its appeal is in its peel. Oh, yeah, point taken. Sorry about that. Um, now, have you ever thought about potato names? There's hundreds of varieties of potatoes and they've all got special names. Lots of them are really quite weird, wonderful names. So we thought we would go through the A to Z of potatoes. As a special treat. As a special treat. And today we're going to look at the A's, or listen to the A's. Uh, and we've got another special guest, Dominica Warburton, who is a voiceover artist and an old schoolmate of mine. She is going to go through the A's of potatoes. So sit back and relax and listen to the A's. Adirondack Blue, Adirondack Red, Agata, Agria, Adjanhuri, Almond, Alpine Russet, Alturas, Amandine, Amflora, Andine Black, Annabelle, Anushka, Anya, Aaron Victory, Atlantic, Atlas, Augusta, Austrian Crescent, Avalanche. Dominica Warburton there with the Potato A's. Right, Anna, what have we learned on Planet Potato this time? So we have learned uh, that you need to keep 14 Idaho potatoes apart from people in order to ensure safe social distancing. From the fabulous Rebecca Earl, We've learned that though some may perceive the potato to be humdrum, far from it. It actually has a very subversive history. And from Dominica Warburton, well, we've learned how beautifully soothing the sound of potato names can be when recited by a top class professional. If you've got this far, thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us at Planet Potato, you can do so at our Twitter, at Planet Potato Pod, that's at Planet Potato Pod, or, or email us at info at worldpotatomarkets.com. That's info at worldpotatomarkets.com. We'd love to hear you your any suggestions, contributions, uh, or feedback. Until next time then, whether you're mashing, boiling, baking, or roasting, it's goodbye from Planet Potato. Goodbye. <laughs>